I'm going to master that yet. As we continue in our studies of Zechariah and we begin to phase out of the first vision, I want you to just try to fix some of these characters in your mind. We have the four horsemen, the charioteers, I would suggest from the sixth, the seventh vision, Zechariah chapter six, now at rest. The various horses represent various battle phases, bright bloodshed. We have aftermath of conflict, which is lingering devastation. We have a dappled horse, which allows for the plagues of Yahweh, supernatural, in addition to actual conventional battle. We have myrtle trees, which are regarded as an ornamental tree. Tree shrubs, supple like willows, found as the infrastructure of the booth. And so we have a end vision after the dust has settled and peace comes to Jerusalem. And now we are anticipating the Feast of Tabernacles, and that would be the dedication of the great Ezekiel's temple. And that would represent a jubilee situation that this is closing in on. I've asked various people and checked with Jewish sources as to when the next jubilee might be anticipated. And uh, it seems to be a consensus amongst rabbis and, and Jews in general, that it's been suspended, that there isn't a 50th year jubilee designated as yet. So I would suggest that the count will probably start with the return of Christ. And it's going to take that long, 40 to 50 years, in the subduing of the nations. This was put forth by Dr. Thomas. And so God is a God of process the kingdom doesn't come like a child's book where you open up the pages and a little castle and a kingdom pops up in front of you. It's a process. And that's what you're going to see as we get into this study. So let this sock away in your memory bank and be able to pull it up. Yahweh is a divine teacher and he knows that we need visuals and that visions complement his thus saith the Lord's. Now, we're in Zechariah 1, and I want to make one more uh, point of emphasis, and it's in verse 15. And I am very much displeased with the nations that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. And we might add, and thus Yahweh was offended. Now, this occurred at the time of Zechariah as they were in their rebuilding project because the nations round about, although they were at peace now under the regime change of the Medes and the Persians coming online, there were also hostilities in hindering the rebuilding work from the Samaritans in the land, the heathen in general, forces that were external and quite frankly, forces that were internal, feet-dragging brethren and people with different agendas. Now, we know that externally, as we project this to our day, when there will be 
a rebuilding effort in Zion, and there has been since 1948, because Israel has been contending with the external adversaries since day one. And today we look at Israel, and we realize that her enemies externally continue to be the descendants of Esau who are pressing upon her on a daily basis. They are the handlers of the horse bridles, as is referenced in Revelation 14 in the scenario of the reaping of the vine of the earth, or the string pullers, the financiers, the influence peddlers, and the politicians in the Western uh, country and the Middle East who would all try to affect their influence upon the livelihood of the nation of Israel. So these are the stars and the moons of our age. The diplomats of the EU, the Papists, the Soviet, the Arab Emirates, and their business associates, who, like Agag, have been perpetual Jew haters. Now, internally, Israel, as in days of old, has to contend with her wicked shepherds within her midst, her false stewards who have different agendas and who are functioning in a rather godless point of view. They don't have a vision. Um, this is what dogged Israel prior to the Assyrian Babylonian captivity. It's what plagued Israel prior to 70 AD, and it's what's plaguing Israel today as well. So, we want to spend a few minutes and look at what type of a hindrance Israel is struggling under today. The referencing to the overhead, the wicked shepherds in Israel, wicked comes from Strong's word 7563, and it means they make trouble, they vex, they depart, they are morally wrong, and they can be ungodly. Isaiah 56, verse 10 and 11, His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, they are greedy dogs that can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand, they all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. Now, if you'll turn up, Zechariah chapter 13 for a minute, please. We'll see how this will play out and there is resolution. Now, when I read through this, first five verses, And that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be membered, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when they shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother who begot him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord and his father and his mother who begot him, shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer. 
for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So, thus there's going to be a whole change out of uh, the populace of Israel in terms of its leadership strata, so to speak. They will be totally committed to the way of God. Now, in the first verse, there's reference to a fountain being opened up to the house of David. This, as in most prophetic situations, has a natural and a spiritual fulfillment. We know that there will be a fountain that will bubble forth from the great Ezekiel's temple. It'll run down, it'll become a river, it'll feed and nourish the trees on both sides of it. Uh, the leaves of which, we're told, representative of the saints, will be for the healing of the nations. And this is the wood of life, and it really needs to be represented as one tree, the tree of life again, made available to the populace. And it'll heal the Dead Sea, and fishes will be found abundantly as the Sea of Nations, and they will be refreshed. And in Ezekiel 47, 9, we are reminded then, and it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, wherever the rivers shall come, shall live, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live where the river cometh. Now, in the Old Testament, there were many washings, and it was all to remind us of the need for purification, sin cleansing, and for the washing of the water of the Word. And we are reminded in John 15:3, Now you are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. So the Word of God is going to permeate in totality Jerusalem, Israel, and eventually the world. Now, there was a fountain opened for the nation of Israel, was there not, upon Christ's first advent? Um, and it resulted in a fountain that is representative of the blood and water that gushed out of Jesus' side, resulting from the spear wound. So this is a little figurative clue that we look at this in depth. And we're reminded that in the day of restoration, this will be a universal teaching. The understanding of the sacrifice of the Lamb, the understanding of how He brought about a cleansing opportunity for sin. Washed by the blood of the Lamb is a phrase that we all understand and reflect upon. So in Jerusalem, the fountain for uncleanness will be the prevailing doctrine of Christ, the fountain of living water reopened. And this was referenced in John 4.14 when at the well there in Samaria, Jesus said that whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Now, back in Zechariah 13 here, the second verse gives us a clue that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. The unclean spirit, we might say, represents false teaching, false ideologies, concepts, precepts that all factor into how a nation is run, governed, and its populace behaves. 
And this is what we're getting from Brother Rick's class. All of this secular mumbo-jumbo has to give way to the pure fountain of uh, spirit truth. Now, this prophecy or public pushing of one's own false ideas will all be cleansed. Either in written or spoken word, it will be stopped. The inhabitants of the land will be united and finally zealous for the word of God. And we have here in the context, one's own family will rebuke their own children when they feel and sense that they are out of line or blasphemous in their deportment. There will no longer be tolerance. There will no longer be a spirit of toleration for foolishness from any quarter, even from amongst one's own household. Verse 4 implies that the various religions are distinguished today by their garb. You have the whited collars of the popes. You have the orthodox skull caps. You have the scarlet robes of Catholicism, and you have the turbans of the mullahs. And all of this will be washed away. Christ will put an end to all spin on doctrine. They will have to defend their position in the most vigorous manner in order to be tolerable. Now, I want to read a little snippet. And on the overhead, this is coming from Israel, Land, and People of Destiny by John Collier, page 127. It gives us a look into the heart of Israel today. Um, it's their constitution as it was read, and it gives us a glimpse into their charter. Now, in light of what we just considered in Zechariah 13, listen to this and see if things need to be changed. Golda Meir's recollections continue. The long exile was over. From this day on, we would no longer live on sufferance in the land of our forefathers. Now we were a nation like other nations, masters for the first time in 20 centuries of our own destiny. The dream had come true. This was the very heart of the proclamation, the reason for the state, and the point of it all. Ben-Gurion wrapped his gavel again for order and went on reading. Even against the violent attacks launched against us for months past, we call upon the sons of the Arab people dwelling in Israel to keep the peace and to play their part in building the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its institutions, provisional and permanent. And we extend the hand of peace and good neighborliness to all the states around us and to their peoples. And we call upon them to cooperate in mutual helpfulness with the independent Jewish nation in its lands. The state of Israel is prepared to make its contribution in a concerted effort for the advancement of the entire Middle East. Then something quite unscheduled and very moving happened. All of a sudden, Rabbi Fishman stood up and in a trembling voice pronounced the traditional Hebrew prayer of thanksgiving. Blessed be thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive and made us endure and brought us to this day. Amen. 
There was total silence. Here was a paradox, wasn't it? In the proclamation of the new state with this meaningful name, there had been no mention of God. It was a secular state. We had brought the Jewish state into existence, masters of our own destiny. The first time that God was mentioned was in that unscheduled prayer by the rabbi. Thus was founded in the midst of war a Jewish secular state that bore the name that had been divinely bestowed upon the God-fearing father of the race, Jacob, renamed Israel. The, name, the mood of the new nation was expressed very clearly by Ben-Gurion in these words, Always we shall demand of the world that is justly ours. But morning and evening, day in and day out, we must remind ourselves that our existence, our freedom, and our future are in our own hands, our own exertions, our own capacity, our own will. They are the key. This then summarizes, I think, much of the struggle that Israel is going to be required to endure, is enduring now, and will endure before the restoration is finally completed. Now, if you'd like to turn up Ezekiel 34, you'll see how God has been most specific about this dilemma. Verse 1 to 10. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you kill those who are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became food to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. I'll stop there. You can finish on down to verse 10 on your own if you wish. This is not a, this is not a good picture. And it's a dilemma which Israel struggles under today. Now, I'm reading from Debka, which is the website most Christadelphians are familiar with, February 20th. Quote, Sharon, Sharon finally managed to elicit the momentous decision from his cabinet to authorize the evacuation of 26 Israeli communities from the Gaza Strip and Northern West Bank one of the most polarizing in Israel's history. Sharon split his party, dropped ministers, and divided at least two pro-settlement factions. Only after he built a new government coalition with labor to neutralize his own party did he see his way to 
majority support for his pullout plan in the Knesset in the cabinet. Another Debka, February 16, reports the headlines. Two strong-minded Israeli defense chiefs purged ahead of evacuation. The sacking of Lieutenant General Moshe Elan hit Israel like a thunderclap as it followed that of Shin Bet director Dichter. Both of these experienced veterans were widely acclaimed for their achievements in cutting down Palestinian terror. Both have spoken out sharply against the proposed evacuations. Anyone who speaks or writes against the disengagement plan is guilty of incitement, Sharon declared at the weekly cabinet meeting. The departing Shin Bet director spoke freely of the threat of the second southern Lebanon bad land rising in the Gaza Strip after the redeployment of Israel's troops outside the territory. And that is exactly what is happening. The Gaza has become a magnet for all of the terrorists to congregate, a reality that will facilitate their demise. Changing horses in mid-war was a characteristic tactic for the old Sharon and evidence that he has not changed his spots. As defense minister who led the country into the 1982 Lebanon war, he ordered certain units not to be mobilized because their commanders and men opposed his policy. Now as then, he is making pragmatic decisions guided by considerations of political ends, not means or ideals. Then as now, the prime minister brooks no objections to his decisions and is deaf to counter arguments." End quotes from Debco. So this gives us a little different look at things, and this comes from a website that is definitely very nationalistic and interested in the welfare of Israel. So thus, the campaigns of the four horsemen that we have considered in Vision 1, um, when coupled with the seventh vision in Zechariah 6, will bring the resolution to the controversy of Zion. Now, we'll move into the second vision, and I'll read verse 18 to 21 in Zechariah 1. <clears throat> then lifted I up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four artisans, or carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to terrify them, to cast out the horns uh, of the nations, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. Now, what you've got on the overhead are four representative carpenters. In the middle, you have a goat representing beast nations. The goat has four horns, which, of course, are representative of power of some kind. And we know that in Daniel's image, we have the four beasts of Daniel's image, which comp which complement the metals as we tick down from that head of gold being Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And so Israel was to struggle under the four kingdoms, 
It did under Babylon. You have the Medo-Persians, you have Greek, and you have the Roman horn. And it's all on a goat head. And then you might say this also serves to represent that great and terrible fourth beast. So, the carpenters of Yahweh, the resurrected servants of Christ, will all bring their various talents, which they are honing today, i.e. you and I, to come to the forefront at a given time and place. Now, the horns are representative of power and strength, and Israel has been victimized by these horns, and they continue to be so to this very day. Verse 21 states, so that no man did lift up his head. Now, that's an important phrase because it means that Israel, following this time frame of Zechariah, the giving of these visions, was never really out from under the thumb or horn of one of these nations, one of these aggressive systems. And she is under the thumb or the iron horn today of what we call Rome. We live in the day of the ten-toed uh, clay feet, do we not? And there is iron fleck mixed with that clay. So you can't take the influence of Rome historically as we understand it progressing through history. You can't take it out of the present day. We'll develop this a little bit more. There's no way that Israel, under the interpretations of Norris and Watkins, could ever arise to become a worldwide, global, or regional threat really to anyone. How long could the nation of Israel today mount a concerted war in her region? She's very devastating. She's very good on those quick, short six-day war scenarios, but can you imagine her launching any kind of a sustained warlike effort? She doesn't have the reserve. She doesn't have the manpower. She has the technology, but she can't go very long. She has to win decisively quickly. We read from Psalms 89, verse 14 to 17. Righteousness and justice are the habitation of thy throne, Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. Psalm 132, 13 and 17. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, there will I make the horn of David to bud. Psalm 148, 14. He also exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near unto him. So, these four carpenters are masters, we'll say, of the master carpenter. We all work under Jesus. We all study his word. We develop the mind of Christ. And in figure and type, then, we have honed the skills that he has taught us. And this, then, is represented by these four carpenters, or these four artisans. Now, in verse 21 in Zechariah, they are to cast out the horns of the nation which lifted up their horn over the land of Israel to scatter it. 
And we further read that they are to terrify them. To terrify them. And so when the saintly army of Christ comes online, they will be a terror to their adversaries. Now this overhead (laughs) I have dubbed might be one of those, uh, oh man, overheads. (laughs) Just when you think you have the truth all sorted out, compartmentalized, um, you get something like this you have to chew on. The brethren of the master carpenter represented in various forms, just as a carpenter and a skilled tradesman can do many things. He can be an expert at tile. He can be an expert at finish work. He can be an expert at drywall and at framing. The master carpenters of Christ will wear many hats. They will be working in a number of different arenas. They will be manifesting different skills and talents. Let me read them into the record. These all are under this carpenter heading. We have the four horsemen, the four carpenters, the seraphim of Isaiah, four cherubim of Ezekiel, four living ones of Revelation 4, four spirits of the heavens, the four chariots of Zechariah 6, the seven eyes on the headstone, many eyes on the wheels of Zechariah, seven lamps and two golden pipes on the lampstand vision, and the two olive trees. Maybe you could add some more to that. So this then takes our conceptualizing of the work of the cherubim saints in the instigation of the kingdom, its security, its administration, and its management to a greater height. These then are things that you may tuck into your vision Call them up and feed upon it as you can. The number four jumps out at us. Four is the number of perfect administration as applied to historical Israel. It is the base of spiritual Israel squared in the kingdom age, is it not? It was introduced in Eden when Cain was driven out from before the faces of the Caribbean oracle east of Eden. Brother Tommy is brought out an oracle for the acceptance of sacrifice and presumably for teaching the way. Much later, the twelve tribes marched out from Sinai, organized in divisions of four, into their various campaigns. They had the four uh, emblems before them, did they not? They had Judah, which was represented under a lion, Emblem, they had Reuben, which was under a man. They had Ephraim, which was a bullock, and Dan as an eagle. The four marching columns before these four emblems were the antitypical four living creatures of Revelation 4 who left the proximity of the throne and the presence in figure of Yahweh to go out on specific missions. And in the kingdom age, we will all march under a new emblem, will we not? I.e., that would be Christ. In Revelation 21, the heavenly Jerusalem is manifested in the host of saints, and they are now represented in multiples of four. You have the twelve gates, the twelve angels. The wall of the city had twelve foundations built upon the twelve apostles. And so we have twelve, now a multiple of four, representing perfect government. The city lies four square. Each was twelve hundred furlongs squared its side, so it was represented as a perfect cube, was it not? And the surface of this spiritual Israel cube, then, is dividable into 144 equal parts. Well, 144 points us to the 144,000, then, which is a representative figure of those redeemed who have the word of God found in their foreheads or in their mind. 
So from the four faces on the cherubim, oracle, and Eden to the completion of the New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, and the Kingdom Age role at the end of Revelation is a mind-stretching development of prophetic activity. The four faces of the cherubim taught the struggling sojourner the way. You look at the four faces, you realize that we are mortality, that we come through a life of sojourn, and we come through a life of pressure. We drive at a position of covenant through the sacrificial blood of our elder brother and through our own sacrifices. And we have a honed vision as the eagle face of the cherubim that we are able to look afar off and to visualize these things and to order our life and our step appropriately. And then we come to the lion face, which of course points towards our redeemer. But it also points towards what we aspire to be. We aspire to be rulers, kings, priests in the kingdom age. This all comes together in the life and role of Jesus in the future kingdom age administration system of things. This overhead is out of the um, Lucas book on cherubim. And we are speaking now of cherubim, the faces of the cherubim. And it's the immortalized role of the saints in the kingdom age. Cherubim from two Hebrew key words, K, resemblance, and Rab, majesty. The cherubim are resemblance of the majesty. You and I are working on that right now, are we not? As we try to develop the mind of Christ. And Dr. Thomas added in his work of Thanerosis that it also means to ride or to be ridden. So thus, this bit of vision um, is rendered that the cherubim saints are, are destined to be the charioteers of Yahweh. This is a picture that, that really grabs me for some reason. Now, there's an important point to make as we look at this and entertain this thought of cherubim for just a minute, that the four faces were all attached to one head. And that one head, I would submit, is Christ, of course. And it's the Christ one head in all that he stood for, in all that he was represented by the four faces and the phase that he passed through as we learn about him through the four gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have their antitypical face, so to speak, as the commentaries would tell us. So thus, the exhortation of the four faces is that if we aspire to rule, we must learn how to serve. And that's something that we can all tuck away and remind ourselves. If we aspire to rule, we must learn to serve. On the overhead, I put up a picture of a carpenter singularly. The reference is Exodus 31, verse 1 to 5, and it's the account of Bezalel, the, the master uh, architect, the one who was in charge of preparing the building materials. And what is referenced here is that he was called, I have called you by name, Bezalel, and insert your own name there. We've all been called. And Yahweh filled him with wisdom or an understanding of how that temple was to go together and what the various uh, aspects of it represented. And you and I are being filled with wisdom so that we might exercise all knowledge in the ordering of our various talents. They were given to him, and you and I are unique. We are as unique as the faces of the cherubim. In every ecclesia, we have different talents represented by the different faces of the cherubim. I'm not saying that you look like the different faces of the cherubim, but um, we have talents that reflect that. And the command in charge is we are to build. We're not supposed to hide our talents under a rock someplace. So these then were the qualifications. All the names for saints might be categorized as fine and exotic woods, as in various parts of scripture. The wood of the lies, which was referenced in Revelation 22. The goodly trees and boughs referenced in Leviticus 23. And the carpenter saints will be required to hew and to hone these talents that they might be applied in the terrorizing of the opponents and the antagonists and antagonists of Israel. So there is a purpose. And it helps to have a vision of this as you slog through the daily sojourn. So the qualifications then. What are the qualifications of these carpenters that we see? They themselves are represented as goodly and living stones, aren't they? The lively stones of the New Testament. And we can say the qualifications of the carpenters are because they, we, have been there and done that. Isn't that right? Through much tribulation, we are quarried. Tribulation is rendered pressure. These caravan saints were described in more detail in Ezekiel 1. And they're referenced in verse 7 as having straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. Clean animal. That's what we aspire to be. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass through tribulation and trial and pressure. And this reminds us of our forerunner when Jesus was referenced in Revelation 1.15 as standing in the midst of the seven antithetical lampstands. Was he not? And his feet like fine bronze, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters, representing many, the manifested Yahweh name in Christ. So brass is the symbol of flesh purified by fire. And from Numbers 31-22, all metal that remained after going through the fire was accounted as clean. Therefore, the feet, or the divine action uh, of Jesus and his fellow carpenters, will terrify and tread down the wicked. And this includes breaking the fourth beast kingdom by impacting the clay toes of Daniel's chapter 2 image. Now, thus together will the kingdoms of men be brought down. 
and all the nettles, we might say, and the four horns on that second vision, the four horns will be broken. And this corresponds also to the breaking of the great mountain that looms before Zerubbabel. And this is referenced over in the next chapter, chapter 4, 7. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone of it with shoutings crying, Grace, grace unto you. This will also be the work of the four carpenters, as they terrorize, pulverize, and bring low the kingdoms of men. So, I'll leave you with this little thought. There has to be a demolition of the old kingdoms of men before we can realize the erection of the new kingdom age and the new structure. And since it's going to be on the same spot, since there's no option to move over someplace else and establish the kingdom and the governmental hierarchy of God, it has to be in Jerusalem. There will be demolition in Jerusalem and the topography of the land. Will there not, according to the earthquake in Zechariah 14, before the new literal temple can be built there? The same thing happens to the kingdoms of men abroad. In closing this off, then, the logical question is asked by every watchman in every age, and that is, for how long, O Lord, until these things begin to happen? So now we're coming up on the third vision. And we have the man with the measuring line. So I'm in Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted up mine eyes again, and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where goest thou? And he said unto me, Measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth of it, and what is its height. We have an imaginary measuring line, and it's going forth then from this time frame of Zechariah into the future when these things will be accomplished at the return of Christ. It's a timeline. It's a timeline representing the affliction of Israel. It then encompasses the overturnings. I will overturn, 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 until whose right it is to come and to claim this kingdom. Nothing is left to chance in, in the mind of God. Because the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, history is his will, and prophecy is prediction of history, his will. And everything will come about at a specified time. So you visualize this time frame going through history, and you realize there are no gaps in it. And that applies to our understanding of the apocalypse as well. There aren't any 1800 to 2-year gappers in the apocalypse where the saints of God are cut adrift until things are fulfilled. It's a continual historical unfolding, and this is how we are to understand it. Reading from Psalms 102, 13, and 14. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Nay, the set time is come. For the servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. And this attests to the preservation, the preservation and the historical witness of God's people and his holy city. It's a, it's a marvelous example in the fact that the Jew has remained historically and is a witness today. Any other nation would have become dust, become oblivion. Where are the Hittites? Where are the Jebusites? We'll continue tomorrow.